evening, and welcome to a special episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. The February 16, 1912 edition of the Evening Capital in Maryland Gazette provided a review of three one-act plays sponsored by the Just Government League to encourage votes for women. This was eight years before the ratification of the 19th Amendment. They were performed on February 15 at the Colonial Theater in Annapolis. The plays were The Farce A Close Call by Grace Luce Irwin, Something to Vote For by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and the English play How the Vote Was Won by Cicely Hamilton and Christopher St. John. Maryland Governor Goldsboro and his wife were in attendance, and the boxes were filled by naval officers, their wives and friends, as well as army officers. What caught our eye in this theatrical review was who performed in these plays. Nearly all were affiliated with the U.S. Naval Academy. They were the wives, daughters, and nieces of both civilian professors and Navy officers. For example, in the one act, Something to Vote For, performers included Miss Mary Alger, Miss Louise Terry, and Mrs. Woolsey Johnson, all related to Naval Academy professors Philip Alger, Nathaniel Terry, and Theodore Woolsey Johnson, respectively. The male roles were performed by Naval Academy lieutenants. In the case of Something to Vote For, performers included Lieutenant James Campbell, USNA Class of 1902, and Lieutenant Walter Decker, USNA Class of 1906. The plays were directed by Mrs. Corrine Robert Redgrave, author of How I Became an Actress. Her father was Brigadier General Henry Martin Robert, who published the first edition of Robert's Rules of Order. His family moved from South Carolina to Ohio because of their strong opposition to slavery, and he graduated from West Point in 1857. Corinne Robert had formerly worked with Olga Nethersall, an English actress and producer. Redgrave was married in 1898 to Commander DeWitt Clinton Redgrave, Naval Academy class of 1881, and he's buried at the Naval Academy Cemetery. And she was the mother of Captain DeWitt Clinton Redgrave, Jr., Naval Academy class of 1920. She chaired the Smoke Investigation Committee for the Women's Civic League in 1915, and she is also buried at the Naval Academy Cemetery. Joining me now is Diana Bailey, the Executive Director of the Maryland Women's Heritage Center. Diana, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Where are you located? Well, our physical site is downtown Baltimore at 333 North Charles Street, and we're in the uh, former in Women's Industrial Exchange that now Marion House owns that building. So we're thrilled to have a new physical home, as well as the, all the materials that we do on our have on our website. And then we frequently have trips and events around the state. What's the general purpose for the center? Probably the simplest way to say that is our mission is to add her story to history to tell our story. So that's what we're all about. We're looking for those unsung heroines, we're looking for the hidden figures, we're looking for women that for whatever reason, uh, their stories were not publicly available or they've been lost to journals and diaries and are, we're really trying to add to the history books, which in many cases are not diverse at all, let alone in terms of uh, particularly of the vast um, array of possibilities for women and their contributions. And that has real relevance to what we're talking about in this episode because you and I have discussed a couple of the the women from the Naval Academy in 1912 for, who were performing plays on the evening of February 15th. And could you give us a sense of, uh, was it common to have plays performed to bring awareness in that era prior to the ratification of the 19th Amendment? Um, I, I can't tell you whether it was 
um, how prevalent it was in terms of statistics and all that. But we also have found in our in our search through history that there were a number of plays and musicals and songs that were written about the struggle. There also was quite a bit of cartooning that was done either positively or negatively about suffragists and, and uh, people that either were opposed to it or in favor of it. A lot of it was stereotypical, um, not flattering in most cases. Um, it was not very diverse, so they made it look like it was mature women with uh, big hats and funny shoes. And so the stereotypes were not great, when in fact, most of the early suffragists were frequently women of privilege. They're primarily white at that time, and most of them were well-educated, so that they were not necessarily your average women. Um, but in later times, they were trying to represent more diverse women in terms of women that were in the workforce, uh, the representation early on in African-American women were, was terrible. And unfortunately, they did not, the, the white women were not so inviting with the women of color. And they had similar, similar issues. But again, it wasn't until later that they actually worked more together. Was it surprising to you that there were so many names that were the, the wives and the nieces and the, <laughs> the daughters of Naval Academy professors and active duty officers? I can't, again, it was something that we had not, in our research, and I have a team of volunteers, we're all pretty much volunteer historians, um, had not come across much of that. But I will say that uh, one of our volunteers, Dr. Amy Rosencrantz, has done a lot of research in what was called then the Army of the Hudson, uh, Army of the Severn, which goes obviously right through Anne Arundel County. But there were women that often were, were mentioned in the Maryland Suffrage News, where they would have a tea party, where they would have, and it was always by their husband's name, so that we couldn't tell uh, frequently whether it was Augusta Chazelle or it was Mrs. Mrs. Something. Uh, one of the groups that we've talked about a little bit was the Just Government League, which was based in Baltimore, but they had frequent um, chapters across the state of Maryland. Uh, Edith Houghton Hooker was that president for many, many years. But in many of the journals, she's written as um, Mrs. Donald, I think it was Donald Hooker, and he was a doctor too, so that, so that she totally in, in some journals were, was almost invisible. And it wasn't until later that they used her full name uh, and first name. But, but I think that was a, a, a change that came over the years as she did more publications. She did a lot of writing in, in newspapers under her own name. Um, so that they were, they were proposing that suffrage was really a benefit, could be a, a broad benefit for women and families. Um, again, because a lot of the stereotypic uh, backlash was that it was going to ruin families if women could vote or were smart or could get involved in the community. The reality was many women already were. They were trying to solve problems without the benefit of, of voting or having any political clout at all. What about the National Women's Union? I see that Mrs. Evelyn Wainwright, who was the wife of a recent uh, superintendent, uh, and again, we're talking 1912, had uh, been a member, a very uh, vocal member of the National Women's Party. Can you tell us what that was? Sure. That at, at the early time, there were a number of groups that were out there approaching suffrage and that, that policy shift in different ways. Like the Just Government League was kind of a uh, more academic, more um, straightforward, um, whereas the National Women's Party was a little bit more assertive, and they're the ones that started the marches. Um, the, the National Women's Party in the beginning had uh, kind of famous suffragists like Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, who were the co-chairs or co-presidents or presidents at that time, but they again were 
looking more for a national amendment rather than the state by state ratification that we saw when actually the 19th amendment was passed. I think it's interesting that in Maryland, we like to think of ourselves as somewhat progressive, but in terms of the suffrage, uh, there was a lot of deterrence in the state legislature. So even though it passed, it passed in 1920, it did not get ratified in Maryland until 1941, and it wasn't certified until in the 50s. So what does that tell you? So I, I think women went around some securitous things that they could do. That, uh, in fact, there was a time, I think it was in 1900, that um, there were some women that voted in Annapolis um, on a, a, some small, I don't remember what the actual event was, but they had little pockets of voting here and there. And uh, across the bridge in Still Pond, there were a number of women, both white and African-American, were voting on some, some local ordinance. Again, that was unheard of at that time, but they sort of just did it because that was a community thing. That's just like out West, that many women that were in the West were given the right to vote or had the right to vote without, without it being a state law. So it was really a, a community perception of what voting rights for women was all about. Given that, the, that it, it took so long for the state to ratify it, is it surprising then that the governor and his wife were attending the plays that evening in 1912? I think it's very ironic. So either either um, the the playwright had a had a connection to that, or personal friends, or something that draw them in, drew them in. Um, my guess would be too that um, they were trying to keep away from the politics. Uh, I know that with with President Wilson, uh, his wife was very quiet on the, the idea of suffrage, but yet his daughter and his niece, I believe, were at Goucher College. And Goucher College in Maryland was both by their faculty and by the students were marching in Washington in 1913. Diana Bailey from the Maryland Women's Heritage Center, thank you so much for your time and providing some perspective about this event. Thanks for having me. Tonight, some of the Naval Academy Museum's Monuments Mids will recreate those roles from 110 years ago because we believe that the play was supposed to coincide with Valentine's Day, our midshipmen will perform the one-act farce that opened the evening. Before we begin the play, I'm going to turn to each of our midshipmen who will introduce themselves, tell us the role they'll perform, and tell us about the person who performed it in 1912. Hi, I'm midshipman. First class, Kelly Alexinus. I'm a history major from Celebration, Florida, and I have service-selected Navy pilot. I'll perform the role of Jeanette, which was performed in 1912 by Miss Vera Baker. She was from England and was the niece of Dr. Thomas Fell, who served as president of St. John's College for 37 years until he retired in 1923. I'm in treatment fourth class, Natalie Dills. I'm a math major, and I hope to service select some Marines. I'll perform the role of Edith Bertman, which was performed in 1912 by Miss Nancy DeShiel. She was the daughter of Naval Constructor Robert Brooke DeShiel, USNA class of 1881, inventor of the Navy's first rapid fire gun, the DeShiel breech mechanism. Her grandfather was Dr. Julius DeShiel, president of St. John's College in Annapolis. Her two uncles were Julius DeShield Jr., USNA class of 1885, but was a non-graduate, and Captain Paul DeShield, a longtime instructor at the academy in the Corps of Professors of Mathematics. She married Lieutenant Thomas Gatch, USNA class of 1912, who commanded the battleships USS South Dakota in World War II and was the 16th 
Navy Judge Advocate General and retired as a Vice Admiral. My name is Michigan First Class I.D. Sloan. I'm an oceanography major from Canyon, Texas, and I have, so, I have service-selected Navy pilot. I'll perform the role of Lila Doro, which was performed in 1912 by Miss Gemma Daria. She was a poet, author, and often performed in Annapolis. She married Academy professor Percy Hazen Houston. I'm Midshipman Fourth Class Madison Ferguson, and I hope to major in history. I'm from St. Petersburg, Florida, and I hope to service select surface warfare. I have the role of Cora Carnes, which was performed in 1912 by Miss Caroline Steele, who was the daughter of the chaplain at Fort Meade. She married John Bloodgood Wells II. They're both interred at St. Anne's Cemetery in Annapolis. She was the daughter of Nevette Steele, mayor of Annapolis in 1899. Her sister, Charlotte Murray Steele, married assistant naval constructor Lou Morton Atkins, USNA class of 1906. Her brother, Nevette Steele, graduated in 1923. I'm midshipman first class Moira Camacho. I am a honors pure mathematics major from Huntsville, Alabama, and I serve as selected naval flight officer. I have the role of Mrs. Marsh, which was performed in 1912 by Mrs. Richard Wainwright. Evelyn Weatherspoon Wainwright was the wife of recent superintendent Richard Wainwright and, future, and mother of future Medal of Honor recipient Richard Wainwright Jr. Her father, Alexander Somerville Weatherspoon, was an army physician and the personal physician to Zachary Taylor. Her brother was Major General William Wallace Weatherspoon, who served as the Army Chief of Staff in 1914, but started his career as a mate in the Navy. Evelyn Wainwright was a founding member of the Congressional Union and National Women's Party and would go on to testify in April 1917 on behalf of the NWP to a Senate committee and in 1918 before the House Committee on Women's Suffrage. I'm Midshipman Third Class Jacob Smith. I'm a history major. I have the role of Harold Bentwell, who was supposed to be performed by Lieutenant Fred Halstead Poteet, Naval Academy class of 1903, who had been rehearsing the role, but was replaced at the last minute. Poteet would command a destroyer in World War I that transported Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt, to England. He retired as a captain. And now, ladies and gentlemen, a close call. Marsh's home. A table is set for five o'clock tea. An easy chair piled with cushions and a table faces the audience. Enter Bentwell. Don't let me interrupt you, I beg. Am my occupation of getting the end of my nose steamed hanging over the tea kettle? By no means. You may even sit down and watch me while I do it again. Thanks. Glad to see you. Don't mention it. I was engaged in trying to find out from the society column of the evening paper where I have been this week. But as I mentioned three different places as certainties, at the identical same day, I'm still at sea. As for you... Yes, pray enlighten me as to my own amusements for this week. I am very much surprised. Prepare yourself for disappointment. You're only mentioned 16 times. Really? And four of those are at dinners where I know you are not. What shall we do? I will ask my valet when I get home tomorrow morning. He's not a bad sort. 
He told me sometime yesterday that I had been at three bud dinners this week. How touching. Not so very. You couldn't have touched them with a three-foot pole. Buds are so inexplicably self-satisfied. May I smoke? If you can't help it. By the by, Harold, sorry to have to remind you, but you said you were going to confide in me this afternoon. By Jove, so I did. I wonder now what I was going to confide. Perhaps it is on your cuffs. Take your own time. No. Well, perhaps I can remember anyway. I suppose any old rot will do. If that's all you have on hand. Well, you see, it's this way. I'm, I'm horribly in love. No. For a fact, though I looked at it. What sort is she? Hanged if I know. Coquettish, demure, or intelligent witch? Frank oh. or sly? Oh, that's the trouble. I'm in love, but I don't know with whom. I don't know with what. I don't know why. Dear me, what you don't know would make a book. This is serious. Poor boy. If my experiences can assist you any, they're at your service. Thanks. I was just about to ask, how did it affect you when you were in love with me? I've really forgotten. No, how nice for you. Was it hard work? You want me to tell you? How you showed it, you know. I want to know which one of these girls is the most in love with me. On which I could count for the greatest amount of lifelong devotion at short notice. Which, in short, could sacrifice herself with the greatest cheerfulness to my comfort. Hmm, hmm, how jolly. How many are there? Only four just now. My felicitations. And another fellow, a disagreeable chap with a distressing formality of manner. She wrote to me. Afterwards? Oh, no, before. Gold monogram, best note paper. Told me how much she loved me and all that, but it didn't go down. You are getting cynical. I was born so. But by the way, suppose we keep to the point that I'm out of the class. I am at times exceedingly embarrassed before my conscience. I still have a bowing acquaintance with it. Uh, Ellen, tell me, please, if you don't mind, such a mere trifle, how did you show me you were in love with me? Jimmy, this is a job. There have been so many sins in such a variety. This tea is not half bad. I would ring for a stick for you now. You deserve one. Were it not that I had given orders for the maid to stay out. When I was in love with you, wasn't that some time ago? Oh, yes, now I remember. It was the winter I got that new blue gown from Paris with spangles. Yes, I remember. At the time, I laid it all to the spangles. And you were struggling with your first mustache. I asked someone who is that bored-looking youth was standing by the punch bowl. Glad you found out. But only after many inquiries. You had just come out. That was two years before Mr. March took his fancy for me. I was alone in the world and rather lonely. I remember you telling me that. Really? You have a stupid sort of memory. It is yet in working order. My needs greasing. So I showed you I loved you, did I? Oh, I knew it somehow. Perhaps you can lay it to my intuition. Not at all. It was very simple. I waited until you asked me, and then I told you. Hang it all. That doesn't help me a bit. That's just the, the plan with all the rest. I've told them. That you love them? Of course. And they have all told me the same with varying degrees of warmth. The bud was coy and saucy, left the room immediately afterward. The clever one was witty at her own expense and stayed. The oldest one was sentimental. And the other? Yes. What about the other? She was very intense, you know. And hang it, she's the one with the money. But she bored you. Unspeakably. Then she probably loves you best. Why not marry her? I would really like to. I would, you know. But somehow I can't. I've made a great effort. Bravo. But in vain. I really believe I had rather one of the others. Uh, the bud would be a great deal of trouble, I acknowledge. But the youth has a fault that can be outgrown. But I have horrible suspicion. No, what? That she would have hysterics if she didn't get her own way. What an awful thing marriage is for you men. Yes, isn't it? Women are so ungrateful. 
Then the sentimental one, really, Ellen. Her eyes are like a black cat's. You can't escape them. Fascinating, to a degree. But ye gods, I believe she has a heart. Don't be too sure. That organ belongs exclusively to the delights of old age. And what would I be doing with a heart? Don't need it in my business. Might get in the way. Would probably cut up no end of a row over other men's wives, for instance. No, I scarcely have the requisite courage to go in for a thing of that sort. Wouldn't know what to do with it. Suppose she would want me every day to assure her I loved her, for instance. Couldn't do it. My nerves wouldn't stand it. And you so experienced in that line, too. She might be jealous. Expect me to dance with her and all that rot. Why, she would more likely expect me to play golf with her. No, I couldn't do it. There's too much heart there. I wish to take a course on something quieting, and a heart might make the bone show. I agree with you. By all means, don't marry a heart. No. Then there's the clever one. Well, you know, she's such a fool. They usually are. She made me shiver. How? I'm sure I never remember making you shiver. Thanks, how magnanimous you are. She accomplished that grim end by dissecting her own passion and laughing over it. Have you ever heard her laugh? It is as cold as... Yes, I know. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, that's it. It reminded me of stones rattling around in an old tin pail. Yet that girl is it abominably pretty. If she only weren't clever. If she only weren't no end of a fool. Poor thing, how she loves me. Oh, I don't know. Then the other. Yes, what's the matter with her? Not a blamed thing, that's the trouble. Why, she's all right. And money too, let me congratulate you. Not so fast, she scares me. No. Oh, for a fact, I'm afraid I may marry her. Do you know I really am afraid I am going to? A soft knuckle that on the other side of that door. Wouldn't like to risk it without gloves. Come in, you fool. You see, she's here. Yes, she's it. Marie, you may show up, Miss Bertram. But I have no intention of showing up. Have you a back door anywhere handy? Oh, don't inconvenience yourself. Fire escape, parachute, anything of that sort. Might spoil it all being found here alone with you. Thanks. I wouldn't have it happen for anything. No back door? On my honor, no. It is locked, you see. There's only that door open, and she is already on the stairs. And considers herself engaged to me. How I wish I weren't so fatally attractive to the unfair sex. She's the intense one, too. Yes, I understand. Her money. There is a screen. Thanks awfully. Enter Miss Edith Bertram. My dear Edith, I've just been thinking about you. Pray sit down. You're taking me easily at any rate, but why have you been kicking chairs about? Chairs? Oh, I often do, just for exercise. When I'm quite alone, you know. I kick that chair from where I'm sitting quite over to where it is. Oh. Would you like to see me do it? Not particularly. That must be an amusement nearly as violent as croquet. Oh, quite. But I was wondering why you'd never married. No wonder it irritated you. I have often wondered that myself. Though I never kick anything but myself, metaphorically speaking. Then you have considered the proposition from time to time? Several. I must rearrange that chair. You will have a cup of tea with me, I hope. I I confess I was hoping to. Is it cold? Indeed, it is not. Thank you, my dear Miss Marsh. Now, dear, don't be distant with me today. What has happened to put you out of sorts? Oh, only another one of those prepositions, as you call them. Pardon me, you called them. I did not. Yes, he came and proposed to me last night. At last. Who? Six feet of concentrated conceit. I think I know whom you mean. (laughs) Of course, he had been trying to like me for some time. I had perceived that. You are so quick. Why, it was 
quite visible, even to the naked eye. He had been quite attentive, even dancing with and sent me one box of candy. I had no idea he was such a devoted lover. So of course, considered me as good as one. We were alone in the conservatory. I wore my most becoming blue gown. I'm always proposed to in that dress. Yes, he is so fond of blue. <laughs> he said, I love you. Will you be my wife? I love you. I love you. I love you. He repeated three times. And then he kissed my hand. Was it a long kiss? Painfully so. Then I stood up and leaned right down and looked in his eye. I love you too, Harold Bentwell, I said. I love you as much as you love me and even more. Our happiness on that basis is certainly assured. I love you to such a degree that even though you are damaged goods, I may marry you and may heaven have mercy on my soul. Did you really say that to Harold Bentwell? Yes, I did, but I didn't mean it. What? I mean, I can't marry him because I'm already engaged to another man. And I'm afraid that Harold will be so disappointed. Don't you worry. Enter Jeanette. Oh, you dear old thing. I'm so glad to see you. I'm in such a perfect rush. I can't stay by a minute, so don't urge me. But how do you do, Miss Bertram? Mercy, how red your eyes are. Granulated? I had it once in my school days. But how far away they seem now. So much has happened since I came out six months ago. I wonder if a girl had ever received quite so much attention as I do. Quite likely. I am on the rush from morning till night. Luncheons, receptions, dinners, theater parties, balls, coaching. Oh, it is just too exciting for anything. And the men... Aren't there lots of men, Mrs. Marsh? They just come in droves. It is so flattering. Really, you can't imagine how many compliments I receive. Indeed. How lovely for you, dear. And so gratifying, too. Your mother. As Mr. Palgrave said night before last, he never saw a girl get so much attention from men as I do. And he just wondered that I didn't get spoiled. Isn't he a dear? You don't think he really admires Lago de Vaux, do you? I don't. I could tell you things, but then I won't. And Mr. Curtis, isn't he just cunning? He took Mama and me to hear Camille the other night, and he was just as cute and entertaining as could be. I declare, if I weren't in my first season, I might set my cap for him. But then I mustn't think seriously of anything of that sort for years and years, Mama says. But it is hard when the fellows are so nice. I hate to break their hearts, don't you, Miss Marsh? Oh, I don't know. It depends. Isn't it rather good practice? Oh, I suppose so. But sometimes, you know, I feel just as sorry for them. But as Mr. Bentwell says, with hair and eyes like mine, I must be prepared for anything. (laughs) What else did Mr. Bentwell say to you? Yes, do tell us. We will never tell. We are such great friends of his. Why, yes, so you are. Do you know I have had several spells of really being jealous of you both? But that's all over now. How foolish it was of me. (laughs) Yes, very. When did you get over it? When he proposed to me. Oh, oh, I didn't mean to tell that. Quite natural, I'm sure. One of his proposals is enough to make anyone get over being jealous of him. Poor Harold. He's so trusting, too. What was that? The wind. Did he really propose to you, Jeanette? Well, I should say so. I should think you could have seen how things were going for months past. At last, at home one evening, we were alone together. Dear me. He told me then how much he cared for me. He was so passionate in his protestations that I feared he might kiss me. So I laughed and went after Mama. That was very wise of you. Somehow, do you know, I can't imagine Harold passionate. Oh, no. 
How should you know? You won't have your teeth? Oh, I'm not old enough for that yet. I suppose I may come to it in my fourth season, perhaps, but never before. Or perhaps after I marry Harold. He is so fond of tea. Really? Yes. So, are you going to marry him? Oh, I don't intend to. No. You know, Mama says says he's really quite poor. But then I shall keep him on the string as long as I can. Yes, do. There you are, old darling. Come right here to your mumsy and sit in her lap while we talk to these ladies. Popsy dear, he goes everywhere with me. How are you all? Very well indeed. His dogship too, I suppose. Jeanette was just telling us about Mr. Bentwell's proposal to her. Oh, Mrs. Marsh! Why, don't tell everybody. They might get back to him. He's fainted, poor thing. She's such a warm-hearted girl. I'm glad I have my smelling salts with me. Why should she faint? Because Harold Bentwell has told Jeanette he loves her. Oh, help, help, pour tea on her. Here, let me get at her. By no means. She's coming too. Bring back my tea kettle, Jeanette Livingstone Smith. There, my dear. I suppose you were tired being up so many nights? Mm, I suppose so. Oh, my darling, my little Popsy, you are all I have now. How much better and nicer and sweeter you are than any old clumsy thing of, of a man who tells you lies. What were we speaking of? Oh, yes. Miss Smith, you say Mr. Bentwell proposed to you? What is that to you? Yes, he did. Exactly a week ago tonight. You must have known how things were going, how much in love with me he has been for ages. For how long? Ever since I came out? Six months ago. It has been just that length of time since he began sending me Violet. Every morning he sends me a little bunch like this. Oh, bosh. So as to be present with my thoughts all day. Fair and sweet they are, he says. Like thoughts of me as if I were too gentle to be likened to any flower less fragrant and less expensive. Isn't it so, Popsy? Oh, bosh. You bad girl. Why do you say bosh? How charming. (laughs) My hated rival. The same to you. Miss Devereaux, she's such a child. How dare you, all of you. You're just jealous because Mr. Bentwell is in love with me. (laughs) Jealous? What do you know about the heights and depths of love, you little ignorant girl? Has your heart ever felt too heavy and then suddenly seen to leap into the into your mouth and turn over twice fell at the feet of him who is it master no have your eyes ever wept longing tears for him whom your intentions as well as your friends tell you are born false is false and will die false until the dust takes back his falsest bones to the shades from which they have falsely issued no no have your days and nights ever been cursed with sweet dreams from which the pollen can never fade even though they are not to be but must wither on forever and forever in the heart of whom he has scorned Oh, Popsy, Popsy. What are you crying about, you silly thing? I'm going home. Oh, don't leave us. I'm crying because of you. Don't go now, radiant in your heartless beauty, to laugh in the arms of your accomplice. No, I won't. Quite handsome of you, I'm sure. Miss Devereaux, really, I don't understand why you're afraid of Mr. Bentwell in those terms. You don't? You of all people ought to. Why, you were the very first one he jilted. It was the beginning of his unprincipled career. Hear me, was it? I'm sorry, I'm sure. Be careful, Miss Devereaux. In the first place, you are liable to step on the dog or overturn the tea table. And in the second place, you are going to give us the impression that you have been jilted by Mr. Bentwell. I have, and whoever seeks to deny it hasn't the fact in the case. Three weeks ago, after months of honeyed words and sending flowers and staring at me in church imagine he took advantage of the state of my feelings and told me he loved me right out and right out on our front steps where everybody could see 
Why it is even dark? What could I do there? It was impossible for me to express my feelings anyway by words. So I too told him that I loved him. He held my hand for one long minute. Ardently, I returned the pressure even under my mother's very drawing room windows and have never seen him since. He's a brute. Oh no, only a man. All men are knaves, you know. Dear girls and all women fools. How long ago was that, Mr. Fro? Three weeks ago. The day I found dear Popsy in the pound. An eventful day for me, and yet our calendar only said, a young peasant is better than an old bird of paradise. I am not his first love. Dear me, no child. She wore pinafores. And I am not his last. It is so seldom my heart is touched, Miss Marsh. Why I only fall in love once every six months. That is why I take it so hard. But no one has such an easy thing, graceful way of wearing his clothes as he had. But he is dead to me. Dear me, you are younger than I thought. I would just like to have him here this minute and tell him what I think of him for trying to give me the impression I was his first and only love. I suppose he thinks I am only a child. I shall never, never believe a man again. That is right, don't. I'm so sorry Mr. Bentwell isn't here to get all the bouquets you are throwing at him. You are such a good-natured woman to stand up for him, though, after all, he always speaks very nicely of you. Why, just the other day, he said you carried your years wonderfully. I'm sure I hope I do. Oh, you really do, you sweet old thing. But after all, I believe it was my you first fatally attracted, Mr. Bentwell. You don't know how earnest he looks when he says my hair is prettier than yours. Poor old fellow. I am so sorry I can't marry him. It is sad. But as for you, Miss Smith... Livingston Smith, if you please. I used to dare to be haughty like that. Before I had money. But as for you, Smith, I have my opinion of a girl who regards love as so light a thing that when she gets a proposal, she has to immediately publish the fact from the housetop. Who knows so little of the rapture and sadness of love that when she hears the man she loves discuss? I don't. She goes against him the first time she hears she's not the only girl he loves. Oh, you're nothing but a vain little peacock. Oh, Harold, Harold, I would have been so faithful to you. Oh, Popsy, Popsy. Pop, I was never on a roof in my life. Mama doesn't allow it. And if your old Mr. Bentwell ever speaks to me again, I'll kill him. Oh, don't. Have mercy on his gray hairs. Gray hairs? He hasn't had one. I'm going home now. I have been tortured enough for one day. Come, Popsy, darling. Come to its own sad, to appearance, ready for death, jilted mumsy. We will go together, Popsy, through life. Jilted, Miss Devereaux? Did I understand you to say jilted? May I ask you whom you refer to? And by whom? Speak distinctly, please. Yes, all the world may know. I no longer have any pride left. My lost love has swallowed it all. I choked, Harold, Miss Barry. Harold, I wish you would all be perfectly logical and concise. I want some material for my new novel. Mr. T. Harold Bentwell then has jilted me, and I don't care who knows it. He has also proposed to Miss Smith, and she doesn't care who knows that. Deny it. Never deny anything, dear. Life is too short. Oh, I don't know. But why the T on Harold's name? Does it stand for the Harold Bentwell or only thine Harold Bentwell to all of us? Speaking of tea, Mrs. Marsh, I am distinctly thirsty. Six lumps of sugar, please. I'm very tired. I've been waiting busily all the afternoon. Don't mind me, Miss Devereaux. I've had some such experience as yours myself. Mr. Bentwell proposed to me exactly five months ago, last Thursday night. Oh, dear. What a lot I am learning. I feel as if I had been out longer than six months. Did he ever tell you you had beautiful eyes? Of course. I'm not a bit surprised. I really am not a bit. 
Not at the least bit. Come and listen, Popsy. What do you think of your accomplice now, Miss Livingston Smith? Do tell us about it. I'm sure we won't any of us let him know. Of course course not. not. That wouldn't worry me much. Well, we were sitting together, very close, on the beach. We were discussing crabs. After a while, we talked of other things. He told me how he always felt he was in love. And he said if he hadn't had it so often before, he might think he was going to have it again then. But later still, after the moon came out. Oh. oh. You perceive the rest of them didn't have the advantage of a moon. After the moon came out, he began to look lackadaisical and said, I love you in a low and peculiarly musical and intense tone. Then asked me if I thought I loved him. Oh, can you love me? He cried. For some minutes, I sat in deep thought. Yes, at last I said. I believe I do. I have my fingers on my pulse. Indeed, have had ever since you first began this. And every five minutes, I can distinguish an extra beat. I'm so far gone that I consider you handsome. You even look at me in the moonlight. Tall, broad-shouldered, and inevitable. You know when a man seems inevitable to you, it is a sign. Of what? what? That you have been reading novels. Furthermore, I continued... Your eyes, I feel sure at this minute and under the influence of the moon will haunt me in my dreams tonight. You all know what Popeyes he has. Really? I never noticed. I also know, I said to him, that when I put my hand next to yours on the rock, you'll take it. So on the whole, as you have an assent and neither have I, I suppose there's nothing more to be wished. We will marry and live in a cottage and I will do our own washing when the neighbors are off on a picnic. Isn't it funny? I said to him, if I wasn't a girl of sense, might even think that the leopard could change his spots and you be anything but a flirt or I anything but a scientific dissector of the emotions. Then I laughed. (laughs) I remember now you laughed just that way and he shivered. Yes, we both got cold. And went back to the hotel. Oh, Popsy, Popsy, did you ever hear such a cold-blooded monster? And Mr. Bentwell has nice eyes. Bosh! Mr. Palgraves are six times more meaningful. I'll grant you that, but they don't look it. Mr. Palgraves' eyes are distinctly blue, while Harold's are beautiful-poetic. Poetic? Why, of course! Didn't he ever tell you that he wrote the most beautiful poetry? He told me so. Fancy. Well, thank goodness he never tried any of that on me. We found other ways of passing the time. Men always make love to me, if I'll let them. They never read any tiresome things. Mr. Bentwell especially never can talk about anything else but myself. I suppose he thinks that is all you know, doesn't he, Popsy? That is such a silly acting dog. Girls, girls. You don't ask me what I have been writing on. Writing on? A tablet, I suppose? No! I mean, I want to tell you about the uh, article I've just finished. It is all about the inside of my affair with Harold Bentwell. Names disguised thinly. I have described just how many costumes he put on during a day at the seashore. And who his tailor is. Also, his score in golf. How much he pays his valet a year and his ideas on expansion. I have it all here. There's one whole paragraph devoted to what he said when he had his picture taken, and also where he went after the theater Saturday night. I have not forgotten to say how much he tips the waiter at the cafe, and also his score, 
at poker. Here, here is why he didn't join the Rough Riders and his opinion on the use of cologne. But best of all, and most of the article, in fact, tells from the very beginning everything he said to me. Down at the seaside last summer, it is entitled, Why I Didn't Get the Ring, or By the Sad Sea Waves, Up to Date. Oh, it is jolly well worth reading. I have ordered a lot of copies in advance to send to all my friends. I have sold it to a syndicate for $50. That's me a fan. This is almost too much. Do you mean to say that I've written him all up and it comes out in the newspapers next week? Oh, oh, oh. The screen comes down with a crash, disclosing Bentwell to their view. He stands there a minute while they stare. Oh, help! Fire! Sick him, Popsy! Is that you, Harold? Fancy. What there is left of me. Young ladies, pray calm yourselves. I've stood about enough of this thing. Mrs. Marsh, how came he here? Yes, how yes, came how he came here? here? He must have climbed in at the window. How dare you? Do your worst. I did not come in at the window, but through the door half an hour before the rest of you did. Indeed. 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 Had I known what I was in for, I would have gone out, not but in a spirit of... of... Facetiousness. Thanks. Facetiousness. I stepped behind the screen afterwards. The bouquets flying around deterred me from making a reappearance, from leaving what had become back place of refuge. I was afraid I might get hit. If you got up for my benefit, really, you did remarkably well, and I'm no end obliged. May I smoke, Ellen? If you feel you need it. Ah, uh, thanks. Now, young ladies, I wish to apologize for startling you. Uh, Not at all. Not at all. But, but really... To be frank, I am feeling rather startled myself. Did the love refuse to look even in the direction of its own? Popsy, Popsy, at least I have you left. Nice dog, that Miss, uh, what's the name? Sir, Popsy. Miss Popsy, then. You have a nice little dog. Oh, Harold, how could you? I can and I will. Anything. I only came out from my retreat to lay down a few rules for the guidance of Miss Cora Carnes. I forbid her to publish all that rot. What rot? To what do you refer, Harold Bentwell? Oh, you know all that stuff I got off to you last summer at the seashore. But it was so entertaining. Entertaining B, blowed, guillotine, sliced up. I have been entertaining long enough in all conscience. It is my fate, I suppose. I was born that way. It only goes in with the rest of my blankety-blank attractions. But as for your publishing that rot, I swear, if you do, I'll sue you for libel. It is rather warm today. Perhaps. I might open the window. Oh, thanks. Mr. Bentwell, I was your summer girl once, and I'll not go back on you now. Oh, good lord. But I must publish that article. Listen, you are clean-shaven. Quite, I believe. In my article, you shall wear, wear a blonde beard. Thanks. No one will recognize you. I have brown eyes in my article. I will have blue. Thanks, I'm sure. Don't mention it. I must really be going now. So glad to have met you again, Mr. Bentwell. Hadn't seen you for 10 days. Drop it again to see me on your way downtown someday. Home as usual. You know the time. Thanks awfully. But I scarcely expect to be going downtown in the near future. How mysterious. Well, goodbye, everyone. My dear Mrs. Marsh, thank you so much for that charming cup of tea. The cold-blooded creature. Popsy, come here, dearie. Uh, beg pardon? Come here, Popsy, I said. Won't you allow me to, to assist you, Miss Devereaux? No, go away. You've given me a very loud headache, and I'm going home. Yes, do. I feel you will be the better for a good rest. Come here, you little beast of a dog. Come here, you little fool. Billy, the dog is not to blame. Well, who said it was? I will go with you too, Miss Devereaux. I think Mama will be wondering where I am. She scarcely ever lets me out without a chaperone. Very wise, I think. I've had such a lovely afternoon, Miss Marsh, and such a complete surprise. I am going to the theater tonight with Mr. Palgrave. Indeed. He has such perfect manners. Good afternoon, Miss Marsh. 
Goodbye, Miss Bertram. Mr. Bentwell, goodbye. Ah, uh, pleasant little attention. No cards. She is fond of me. The last of the bouquets. I am very sorry, Mr. Bentwell. So am I. That this occurred, but after all... No one was to blame. No, no one was to blame. Oh, I don't know. Must you be going, Miss Bertram? So soon. I'm afraid I really must tear myself away. I hope not on my account. No, indeed. Of course not. Come again soon. See you at the Curtis dance tomorrow night. Goodbye. Good afternoon. Well? What a comfort a cigar is. I suppose so. I never tried one. You were rather hard on me. I was? Yes. How cleverly you managed. Could I help it? Poor boy. Now you do need consolation. Four girls at once have run off with the bait. What are you going to do about it? You come to confide in me. Dear me, I have had an afternoon of confidences. Don't feel badly. Poor boy. Old bachelorhood creep. I seem to see you now, sitting in a dressing gown and slippers, alone in your flat, gazing mournfully into the fire. No one sits near you to whom you can open up your heart. There is no one there to put her hand in yours and tell you that her whole heart and soul are yours and all her woman's sweet power of devotion. The past rises up before this old bachelor as he sits alone before the fire and all the girls he has for the moment fancied and then prove false to and forgotten come to reproach him with their happy faces and their mother eyes, the joy of some other man. They smile at him and their smiles are mocking for they know how lonely he is and how he longs now for the sweet relief of a home about him and the love which once he trifled with and threw away. But their mockery changes to sadness and pity, for long ago they got the revenge. And a happiness they found in some other man's heart, and they know, they know, Harold, how you all regret when you are old and lonely, the lost loves of your youth. Is it only his first love a man remembers? Yes, his first love. And she comes to him in the twilight and sits close beside him, and the words she says to him are what he dreamt long ago she might have said. Had he not grown tired of her? Tired of her? After all, they are only of love and loving forever and such sentimental bosh. But somehow words like that, filled with the promise of eternal, blissful, comprehending companionship, on earth and afterwards in heaven, are very sweet to hear. And a man likes to hear them, and a woman to say them, for all the laughter of the world. The world is such a farce. But doesn't know it. And one's sense of humor fails when always before one's in love. Yes, that is the first place. It is only other people's love affairs which are funny. I'm in a devilish serious mood now, Ellen. Not over those girls. You know I've never cared a rap about them. It was only you all the time. Will you love me, Ellen dear? And let me love you a great, great deal? Will you take me for a little better and the great deal more worse, I am afraid. And your damaged goods too, but you're my damaged goods. Caught at last by Jove, and I swear it's pleasant. That concludes a performance of the one-act farce Close Call performed in Annapolis, Maryland on February 15, 1912. The opening music was the number two song in 1912, Moonlight Bay by American Quartet. The play's introduction song was number eight in 1912, I Love You Truly by Elsie Baker. And the play's exit song was the number five hit in 1912, Come Down, My Evening Star by Lillian Russell. This has been a production of the United States Naval Academy Museum, Monuments Myths. <laughs>